Hello, I'm John Pollitz, Dean of Library Affairs at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and your host for Saluki Stories. Today, we are again talking with Dee Gorton, a longtime Carbondale native who grew up in the segregated South in Greenville, Mississippi. In this second episode, we learn of Dee's life as a New York Times photographer and the book he is currently working on. But let's let Dee tell his own story and dive right in. So, you weren't a photographer. No, no, no. I was going to be a historian. I was going to be either a historian or I was going to be a, a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Huh? That didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had, H, H, what's it called? HD? ADHD? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. But I think it was, uh, as I was, as say, premature yeah. diagnosis yeah, right. before everybody got that one, you know. So I was kind of, I was always interested in moving around and doing things. I liked, I liked the excitement, you know. Yeah. And uh, I liked ideas. There were two things that really attracted me. And when you put those two things together, what better world than, than I found? Yeah. Ultimately, it was photography and, and, uh, the news, and the news business that I got involved in. So that my background gave me, gave me the ability to, I think, gave me the ability, and that's somebody else can make a choice, to understand politics and to make sense out of them. I went on at one point to Students for a Democratic Society, mm-hmm. which was the largest uh, student um, anti-war and radical organization in the country in right. the 1960s. Right. My wife, Jane Adams, was national secretary of that. She was the leader. That Is that night. right? Oh, yeah. Jane was wow. by far the most... She had never say this, but by far the most important woman student leader in the United States in the 1960s. You know, it's been a long uh, time ago, and yeah, so sure. and, and yeah. Jane never talks about it. But yeah, she was a, she was national secretary. Yeah, but I was I established the photography uh, outfit department there, uh, and then later on when I went into into the newspaper business, I had it. I had a, a, an unbelievable knack. And I look back on it now, it's hard to believe. I really did understand the politics of what I was following. Really? And it was yeah. East Coast politics. I, I, and I did not, you know, I went on the West Coast for a while. But it's when I went on to, the, I was hired by the New York Times eventually uh, to be a photographer. I'd been, to, I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer as a chief photographer. And then I went to uh, the New York Times in Manhattan. And the, the deal at, at the Times, and it was probably true of all the big elite papers, is that that access to the politician was considered to be critical. You had to have a real relationship with that guy so that at 1 o'clock in the morning, if something happened, you could make a phone call and get through to that person. And it was true also with photographers, that if something something happened and it turns out that uh, some scandal was going on, you could still get in there and get those photographs. So I was always choosing... You know, they'd say, okay, who do you want to cover this year? And I would yeah. say, I want to do this one. And somebody did this one, and somebody else would do that one. So you would become, and I did become, attached to Daniel Moynihan, who was a senator really? in New York, or yes, Bella sir. Abzug. Really? Who was, yeah, those were people I would choose. Or Jimmy Carter, who disappointed yeah. me enormously, but nonetheless, I was able to choose all kinds of people who wound up winning. And as a result, my particular stock <laughs> went up simultaneously. Yeah. So I wound up at, at the, at the, with the New York Times at the White House 
where I covered the White House for a number of years under Carter Reagan administrations. Wow, why did why did Jimmy Carter disappoint you? <sighs> I don't know what to say about Jimmy Carter. It's just he was he was unbelievably inept. Uh, I, I don't even know where to start, you know. And that's just from 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 the point of view of working there. I'm not not necessarily my political right. uh, yeah. opinions, but uh, he just was just. I don't know. He never really quite figured it out. You know, I had worked in, in uh, America's Georgia uh, that summer, and part of that summer of 64, and that's where Jimmy Carter was state senator. Right. And he was, he was, down, with, he was down with all that segregation, and then all of a sudden he became governor, and he, he changed his mind, which is all wonderful. He was governor right. of Georgia. Yeah. And then he became um, this real empathetic presidential candidate after this terrible Nixon had been Nixon of course, yeah. forced to resign and we'd go out on the campaign trail and we we it's this terrible thing to say we'd wind up imitating him we'd, we'd, we'd each to each other all yeah. the newsmen we'd, we'd like try to imitate his voice and we want to be the people as good and decent as the American people and everybody would practice that and <laughs> we'd make jokes with it but you don't you shouldn't make an easy target out of the person right. you're covering. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like that. And his, his crew was like that. Really? I mean, they were, yeah. I don't even know where to start. They, they <laughs> just couldn't do it. I mean, they, no, they weren't ready for prime time. Yeah. They really weren't. And, 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 and not that anyone in this podcast cares about Jimmy Carter's presidency. I do. But or, I mean, I, mean, that's I was, but I was, I was there the night of the, of the so-called Malay speech. Yeah. You know, we were, we actually, we had been in Chicago and they woke us up at three o'clock in the morning and, had to get on the plane and get back to D.C., and he's going to do that malaise speech. Well, of course, he never used the word malaise. That's become known as that. But right. he, you know, he, he basically blamed the American people for all the terrible mistakes they were making. They were the ones who were forcing inflation up at that point. Now, and again, our podcast audience probably didn't know what inflation looks like, but it was up to 25 or 30 percent. Yeah, if you can believe yeah. it, wow, it right. was incredible. Right, right. and um, they. I brought, remember what home home mortgages were going at fifteen percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for secure, it's like a building. Yeah, and it's still at fifteen percent, as if somehow it's going to get wiped out by an atom bomb or something. <laughs> but you know, it's incredible. Yeah. You know, your your mortgage rates usually were three to five percent at right. the most. Right, and uh, at that time they'd been guaranteed at one point three percent. They were at fifteen, and they were heading for twenty. Yeah. And then, of course, they brought in Paul Volcker as uh, Secretary of Treasury, and he raised the interest rates for the federal government to 22%, I think. And I could hope I'm not wrong about my numbers. But that's the world I was covering. It was a world that where, where economics had gotten completely under, just blown up. Yeah. No one yeah. knew anymore, you know, what, how things worked right. and what right. government could do to make it better. People were really hurt. And we're going through, it looks like we may be going through that again now. Yeah, we're in a tight spot. Every so often, like I said, I'm 80 years old. I've seen this four, yeah. four times Been before. down this road before. I've seen this one before. I've, you know, I know how this one goes. <laughs> all right, so then let's bring it all together. And you also did a series of photographs about whites in the South. Right, right. And it's part of them or some of them are going to be published in a book that you've been wanting to publish for Fifty years. Fifty yeah. years. What what happened was that with uh, SNCC, which was a black organization, 
had asked for whites to find a way to work in their own communities and to allow blacks to organize black communities. So I took that at, at heart. And then after a couple of years, I decided I want to go back south again and to photograph my, my people, my, the folks that I came from, the ethnic group that, that yeah. I came from. And, of course, at that time, the, the south and most of America was, was binary, black and white. Yeah, It didn't have a large immigrant population at all. So those, the, the terms of those politics were always dealing with, um, with white supremacy and black-white relationships. And as I went to, went to photograph that, I had to try to understand what to look at, what, what could I see that would make sense, that would show you the nature of that culture. And right dead in the middle of it was the end of white supremacy. They ordered the complete integration of Mississippi schools over, that, over the 1969-1970 winter. And that was the end at that point. No longer did white supremacists have the ultimate power of actually telling you what your children would do. Oh, that, was, yeah. that was it. And that was in the period that I was shooting that that story. So I shot, you know, thousands of photographs uh, all over the South. But most of, many of them are inside that, that delta that I described at the beginning of our, of our talk yeah. of uh, the world's most, most uh, I guess, the most southern place on earth. And also I was, you know, I had been part of the delta, you know, aristocracy in the sense not, not in terms of landholding. Yeah. But in terms of being part of that social world, I was in the what they called the Bachelors Club, which were the boys that were chosen to escort the debutantes. Oh, yeah. Delta Deb- yeah. Debutante Cotillion. So when I went back to photograph it, I went back and photographed the Delta Debutante Cotillion, yeah. and I knew what I was looking at yeah. inside of that. So I could see that world, whether or not you can make sense out of it by looking at pictures without some kind of a real context inside of them, it's hard to say. But one thing that I know that, and I, many things that I knew actually that very few people did, was that the Delta was a true construction. It was a, it was a, it was a conceptual idea. It was something that didn't exist. I mean, it had been nothing during the Civil War. It, it only happened right. a few years before. And it only it doesn't make and it shouldn't be surprising the Delta Debutante Cotillion was founded in 1932, you know it was like 1936 or <laughs> really? something. Yeah, it was, it was not very like some recent, antebellum. No, thing. it was some very recent kind of thing as they put into place everything that people could think of that was making them into Southern white aristocrats, yeah. plantation aristocrats, and all of that, including the writers that we had and the novelists that we had, they were all writing those kinds of stories about the Deep South and Mississippi and the Delta, and they were creating a myth of the Delta. So in a lot of ways, what I knew was that it was what I was looking at was not true. It was a myth. I had been part of that myth. I have been broken out of that myth as well, but it may not have been as hard as people might think when you make choices like that, if you're dealing with something that it fundamentally just did not make sense, it was unreal. Yeah. You had 80% of the population was black, 20% were white of them, 5% were privileged. I mean, it was that, that you just don't, (laughs) that's not something that's very sustainable. So that world that I looked at when I made my photographs was the world of the unsustainable white South. And in many respects, you know, it also is my respect for people. You know, I don't, I'm not disrespectful. There are working class folks inside of there in those photographs. There's a woman who 
It was a Vietnam War widow with uh, her oh, children on the front porch of the, my God. the house. That's a powerful photograph. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, there's all kinds of people, but you almost need to tell their stories to kind of make it make sense. And, and and you can't do that with photographs. I mean, pictures show up. People take a look at the photograph, and on they go. But that the the book hopefully will be out this year. It's been it's been the photograph's been published in the New York Times and the in the BBC and I don't know yeah. where all it's it's they've been all over the yeah place. I've seen them yeah yeah one interesting thing to me is that I was invited up to speak at uh, a college in New York this past a couple of months ago by their diversity and uh, inclusion officer at uh, for Black History Month. And they wanted to look at these photographs. They wanted to understand that history as best they could. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was to my one of my obligations was to teach, and I'm not a teacher, but to stand in front of a bunch of photographs and tell students what I'm what they're yeah. looking at. This yeah. is what they are, you know. Yeah. Well, when you do that, you anticipate what people's reaction will be. You know, I've got photographs of police. I've got photographs of demonstrations. Uh, you know, that, that's surely that's what they're interested in. No. And this is an interesting thing, a real revelation to me. What those black students did, and, and I actually I'm, I meant to bring the brochure with me because they took and made a book out of it, you know, that yeah, yeah. handed out to people. Yeah. I had several photographs of young children, eight, seven or eight years old, playing together who were black and white. One of them, the kid was on a bike. And again, when you're talking, it's hard to make a photograph when you're speaking. Right, but yes, sir. Imagine. A, a photograph of two children on a bike with a kid in the front. It's got its legs over the handlebars. They're both smiling, and they're both fun. It's an older black kid and a younger white kid. And I, in my judgment, felt like that was a little too sweet, a little too saccharine, and people wouldn't really believe it. You know, it's, you know, it, no, what about this one over here? This police, that's the one we're going right. No. The black kids chose that photograph. And so I was being taught. I was no yeah. longer the teacher. I was now, what, what about By that? that? One. Yeah. Why? And they said, because it's emotionally close, because it's an acceptance, it's a reality uh, between people, it's emerging. And I was stunned. I was simply stunned that, that students, and these, now these are kids in the north, I don't know. If it had been different, if it's of Georgia or Los yeah, right. Angeles, yeah. but in New York, I mean, they really like those photographs. Those those intimate, close, genuine uh, photographs of black children and white children together, and I was surprised. And I thought that I thought that the that the kinds of uh, alienations that were going through and the separations that were going through would be would, would kind of knock something like that. But no, it did, It turns out, at least in that case, it didn't. So that's really surprised me. I've had to rethink the entire book, as a matter of fact. Really? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, I, have to, sure. I have to think again, what, what photographs should we use? You know, how do I, how am I, how can I possibly be inclusive in, in these photographs? I'm a white guy taking photographs of white people, right? Yeah, right. I'm not right. black. We don't have, right. I'm, you know, it's a... I don't know what they think, but that group told me what to think. So I may even put that on the, as a cover yeah, of the book. Really? I'm really. thinking about it, yeah. Do you have a title for it? I always called it The White South, White 1969, South. 1970. Yeah, okay. It's caught within a very short period of time. It's not an essay that goes on for years like many of them do. It's a real narrow 
snapshot of time. And I think for that reason, it's got a bit more coherence to it. Well, I think it's we're coming up on our time, and I certainly appreciate this. This is you're, this has been fascinating for me. Well, you're 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 a very kind fellow to say that. I don't, uh, I don't think my stories are necessarily that fascinating. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I may be ten, at about exactly ten years younger than you. Oh yeah, you're but, about fifty or so, right? Yes, yeah, it. <laughs> You know what you know what end of life is looking like. Absolutely, and uh, and you're do and you're trying to do evaluations and trying to understand what happened. Yeah, and you know Jane and I both talk about end of life is you know another sequence. You make sense out of it. You try to try to prepare right. yourself for it. But I'm at 80 years old, and there's no question. But my numbers are real slow now. You know. I know what. You know. I mean, eight years, seven years. Yeah. You know, whatever. We can see the horizon. We can. You know? <laughs> or or the black wall or whatever. Well, you I'm know. not so sure it's that bad. You know, yeah. we'll see. But but, we, but you know, you're you're aware that your time is limited. Yeah, and, and, and you gotta and make you try to make sense try out to of do that. Better. Too. Yeah. 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 And you take the materials. I'm going through my work and trying to make sure it gets put you know, put somewhere and make some sense from what I've done. In that sense, I do recognize I've had a unique life, and that absolutely I have, I have yeah. material there that that maybe be helpful to other people. Because what we're doing, you know, what we all do is we make these decisions. It seems like maybe maybe that's too petty bourgeois of me to say that that some people don't have decisions that they are forced to do they what don't. they do. Uh, yeah, that's true. So decisions are a bit of privilege. Yeah, but. America is a very privileged place, no matter at what point you are in that in that in our country. So you do have to make some. Yeah. Do you go to SIU or not? Do you right. borrow money to go to SIU or not? Do you do you know all these things that you're trying to make sense out of in your family impinge upon you? And by the time you hit seventies and eighties, you know whether you've made good decisions yeah. or not. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah. Well, D. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your Saluki story. It was a delight to talk with you. And I hope you all will join us next week for more Saluki stories. This has been John Pollitz, Dean of Library Affairs at Southern Illinois University of Carbondale, and your host for Saluki Stories. Our production would not have been made possible without the contributions of radio, television, and digital media assistant professor of practice, Jennifer Payton. Student editor and producer, Casey Avis-Rouse. And our musical production team, Austin Davis and Dakota Holden. Go dogs!